Sure, the price it has been paid. 
very good morning to you, brothers and sisters. I hope that uh, with all that's happening, uh, yesterday's a very nice day. I think that seeing that sunshine uh, just really lifts the spirits. We see the glory of God and his hand in all things. And greetings to those who are, who are at home this morning. Uh, know that we, we uh, long to all be together again, but I still think we are one church family. And I pray that that spirit is uh, very much a part of, of how we're feeling. Uh, with all that's happening, uh, not just the virus, of course, but with the events of Wednesday, which if you get our weekly emails or you go on our website, I have a few more comments there. But of, of course, for all of us, this is a time of, uh, a lot of people we know are on edge. And I would just say it'd be a real shame. It would be a real shame indeed if God's people uh, didn't view this as a great opportunity uh, to show the world what really matters. And that is, we're the ones who, you know, despite our disappointments at any various levels on these matters, uh, to say, you know what, it, it's okay because our hope is in the Lord Jesus. All the more so when everybody else is kind of, you know, shifting and asking questions to say, no, we're locked in on the fact that the Lord is doing his work and that this is a time for us to point people to him. And again, I, I look around, just sense there's a great deal of anger or, or with a lot of people that I know, and I just say, we can be upset about things, but I say, was well, it a two or is it a 10? And uh, how much better to say, you know what, I'm disappointed by a number of things. However, it's okay because I'm about my father's business. And may that be, I, I pray on your heart as well to say, this is an opportunity in our time and our place to really be the church and to explain to people why we would put our hope in Jesus and not in things or in governments and so forth. By way of announcements, we'll have uh, one announcement today. The elder-led monthly prayer meeting will be Wednesday, January 20th from 7 to 8 o'clock. So if you're in youth group, you say your normal youth programming will not be interrupted. You'll be in this room and in the other classrooms. Uh, but we're going to be praying for uh, each other in the church and also for our country. Again, elder-led monthly prayer meeting Wednesday, January 20th, 7 to 8 o'clock. Those things being said, we now devote our attention to um, the time where we, we come together to glorify God. Pray that we're able to do that in spirit and in truth, and Matthias will call us to worship. Thank you, brother. As he already mentioned, um, this is one of the reasons why David wrote in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Not only was that for his own encouragement to continue to praise the the Lord, but also that would give encouragement to those who saw his actions and behavior. And as we can do the same thing this morning, let's stand and sing these truths.
strength is failing. The end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise This morning, let's do a responsive reading as we say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory now and forever. Amen.
the pastor of student ministries here at Providence. I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, you are sovereign over all the nations. Your son sits enthroned over all the earth. We confess that no one can overthrow you and such futile attempts are just a bad joke to you. And yet we have seen this week the nation's rage. And as we've watched from afar, we must confess that in our own ways we have joined you or joined them. In our minds, we have plotted to bring about our plans. We have conspired against your decrees to further our own agendas. Father, I confess all the ways this week that I and we have forgotten that your son, our king, is enthroned on high. Would you be merciful to us sinners, Father? And we ask that you would help us to live wisely. Would you give us eyes to see your glory and your majesty and let that awe of you cause us to serve you? Would you help us to be committed to your commands that we might not be ashamed before you? And may we take refuge in you and so experience your blessing. Father, we thank you for the life of Anita Ozenbergs, that she knew you is, and is now experiencing the bliss of being in your presence. We ask that you would comfort her husband, the Ivers, and the Payerchins as they grieve her going home. We also ask that you would be near Dan and Julie Berkheimer as they grieve the passing of Dan's mom. And now as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would humble us, that we would gladly receive what you would say to us today. And we ask that you would be among us and that you would change us. We ask all of this in the name of your son, the king who is enthroned forever. Amen. Now, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Uh, and if you're able, would you stand uh, with me uh, as we receive... God's word to us this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and my translation of our text this morning, it goes like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. Well, we continue forward this morning in our study of this much-beloved epistle called Philippians. And of course, we know that Philippians is written to those in a time and a place 2,000 years ago that we don't want to blunt that edge, this uh, leading Roman colony in Macedonia. But we would understand also that it's a command or an encouragement to all of God's covenant community through all the ages. And that's why I think during this particular time, uh, the season of life we find ourselves in Northeast Ohio, it is a very timely book indeed. Now you remember last week, we spent a lot of time just on those first two verses. That in the ancient world, writing letters is very common. And at the beginning of those letters, you always have the person who's writing, those who are receiving it, and then some kind of salutation. And so it is with Philippians. Now, what's interesting, though, if you remember, 
is that Paul, it's as if he can't help himself, but to take those traditional elements of the opening of a letter, and he's got to go to Jesus. So it's Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Philippi, in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you, which is ultimately is from Christ Jesus, that Paul, see, everything is about Jesus, that whether we call this, as others have, the epistle of joy or the epistle of excellent things, that what we must see is from start to finish, it's about what God has done through Jesus for those who are called out in Philippi. And how striking uh, it is, I think, for the modern ear to read what these Philippians are called there in verse 1. We spent a bit of time on this last week, you remember, but they're called saints. You say, well, I don't know about saints. I mean, isn't that what the Roman Catholic Church does to those who have made a significant contribution to the faith? I mean, how in the world are these, you know, unnamed Philippians, are they the saints? Well, if you remember, saints are the called out ones, those who are set apart for a different purpose. And the reason why they're set apart is because they're in Jesus. That it's not that we think of ourselves as being holy or set apart ones in a snobbish way, but rather the church in Philippi and in Avon today were those in whom God is doing a work, in whom God has regenerated us, that he's at work in us, we're in Jesus. So whether it be our motivational system or the words we speak or the places that we go, it's as if uh, we're fish in water, so it is the Christian in Christ And for that reason, it's not that we're better or snobbish, but it's because we're in Jesus and he's that different that we too would be thought of as those who are called to a different work. I hope that's been an encouragement to you this week that we are those and you put your faith in Christ, you're a member of this congregation, that we're those who are set apart to do his work. Now in the passage we'll focus on today, 3 through 11 a very rich theological passage, and that's, I think, a testament to uh, the Bible's uh, credit, where you say you can take one passage and probably preach a number of different accurate messages, uh, depending on what we focus on. But I think what, I, uh, what we need to look at today is as Paul prays, it's a prayer of thanksgiving here, why he's so thankful for this Philippian church. You know, of all the New Testament churches, you say, this one may have been the healthiest. You say, we know there were problems in Corinth and there are problems in Galatia. Uh, The Colossians, you know, we that great discussion of who the problem is in the Colossians. But whatever, we don't really have that in Philippians as much. Uh, This is a solid church, not without its troubles, of course, as any church will. But Paul here opens up with this great prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippians. And what it's going to tell us today is Mark's of a healthy Christian fellowship. What would be the marks of Providence Church? You say, we're on the right track. This is what God wants. And so in this prayer of thanksgiving, I uh, put the bold heading on the first point today, is that healthy churches have a high, we could call it a high relational density motivated by Christ. When I talk about relational density or high relational density, you can think of all the groups you're a part of or all the people you interact with. You know, I think of the, if I shop at the same place and I go to the same person that's the checkout and we exchange pleasantries, she knows my name, I know her name. You'd say that's, there's some kind of relationship there, but I would say it's a, a low relationship there's, there's not much density to that relationship. We could say it lacks a kind of social thickness. Whereas what I'd like to think is that in the church, we don't have these casual interactions of pleasantries, just individual movers but rather a high relational thickness that's centered on something real. That is what Jesus has done in our lives and what he wants to do through us. And so the way we'll enter into this is by first noting that Paul understands everything that God's doing in Philippi is done in community. Have a look at how many times he uses all. So look at verse four. Always in every prayer of mine for you all about jumping down to verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of the grace. Or verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection. It's always all. That it's not as if there's a church, again, of these different factions, and there's those over there and these over here, we're just kind of passing through, but it's all of us together, the call that ones in community. So I ask you, you Good question to ask people. Say, what's the church? So that's a question we have to always revisit and be asking. Say, are we on mission? Are we doing what the, you know, God's word wants us to do as a church? What is the church? You know, say, what do people say? Well, it's the building, the place that we go on Sundays. It's the activity that we do at 930 on Sundays. 
Is it uh, the place where you go to get little nuggets that help your life go a little bit smoother? Maybe worse yet, it's the place we go to see the show. Say all those would be, I don't think, correct answers. Say what we want to see is it's a community of God's called out ones. It's those in whom God is doing a work and it's all of us together, you all. To press this a bit further, See, in Christian relationships, be it Christian marriages, Christian friendship, Christian fellowship, is that we must view our relationships not as two-way, but as three-way. Say, Pastor Caleb, who prayed, you say, a lot of us, you say, we have a two-way relationship. There's him and there's me, and we talk about the things that we talk about. Say, that's how most of us view any relationship. It's two people, two-way. Paul would say it's never so in a Christian community, that there's a three-way Bond. It's a three-way bond driven by the mutual partnership we have in Jesus. Some have seen the, I think it's a really good marriage illustration. You say it's an equilateral triangle like this, and at this point in the triangle, you have the male, and at this point in the triangle, you have the female, and you have Jesus at the top. And the reason why that's a great marriage illustration is because pastors will use it to say, here you are, two individual people. It's not a two-way relationship, but as each of you come closer to Christ, as you grow in Christ, you're going to come closer together. And I think that's what we see here in Philippi. The called out ones who are in Jesus, who are governed by what he's done, based on their mutual understanding of what he's done, actually have a three-way bond, both with one another we do, but it's driven by what we have in common in Jesus. You see, friends, we are all, we must be in the church, in the people business. Say, I think it's wrong for some of us to say, well, I'm introverted. I can't you know, be bothered to introduce myself to people or be known very widely in the church. Say, I would just check that a bit and I'd say our understanding of any kind of church is that it's about the people that God has called out to do his work. You know, yesterday, uh, Sister Anita, who you heard about in the prayer, she was called home to glory and I'm um, at the, the funeral and her son delivers the eulogy and he says, you know, mom taught us above all else to invest in people. And I think that's right. Um, Paul's faith, and it comes through in his prayers, you notice all the time in these prayers in Paul's letters, what does he pray for? Not so much his stuff, not his accomplishments, but he prays for people. That gives us a key insight to what we're trying to do as a church and our spirituality. What is our church about? Is we understand that God has called us out as a, as a group of people. Say we have a really short time, if you think about it, a very short time to be this church in this little spot of God's green earth. You say, boy, we got all the centuries of the church behind us, the transience of people. Say, here we are on this day to be God's called out ones. What are we going to do with it? Well, we must be in it together communally, you all, in the people business. It must be about the people. The three-way bonds, and he'll make this point, I think, in a couple of ways, and I decided to focus in on what he's thankful for in terms of the partnerships. Three different angles we'll look at here. Firstly, look at verse 7, that he's giving thanks for these Philippians, all of them, because you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, the Greek grammarians tell me that there's actually an article in front of grace there, so it could, be re it could read, for you are all partakers with me of the grace. In other words, what Paul's saying here is that those who are Christians have an understanding of this concept of receiving God's unmerited favor. You know the old story, maybe you've heard it told, but I'm told all the, the, the great, uh, uh, you know, all the, the philosophers and theologians are sitting around Oxford talking about what is, might be different about the Christian faith, and they're at this many hours. And in walks C.S. Lewis, and he says, well, what are you all discussing here? And he says, well, we're talking about uh, wh what would make Christianity different among all the world religions. And Lewis, in one line, he says, well, that's easy, it's grace. See, I think there's some truth in that. Say, every inclination of our hearts is, you know, revenge and entitlement, and I'll get you back, and I'm going to earn it. Say, these are the natural impulses of the human heart, but enter the message of Jesus. You'll never be able to do it on your own. We've all fallen short of God's glory, you know, say, whether you, you know, no doubt some people have lived worse lives than others, but you say, all of us who are in Christ, we have this understanding that we needed help that I'm weak and I'm sinful and I need Jesus. I'm a recipient of his grace. I'm a partaker of his grace. And anybody who would say, I think I'm, you know, I am in Christ must understand this. 
I think last week I made that remark. It's always perplexing to me when people would self-identify as Christians but then have no uh, idea of what they need saved from. In other words, have no idea of, of this dynamic of sin and, and saving. Say, isn't that the point? Say, if we call on Jesus as our Savior, it must be an indication, I hope, the, the implication is that we are sinners in need of his help. They're left to ourselves. You know, no wonder the messes we get ourselves into at each other's throats and angry all the time and going the wrong way as we, we kind of kick God, you know, God to the side. We fire God and look at what's happening. You say, we in the church must be those who understand grace. You know, the lines say, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Have you heard that? It says, well, yeah, that's the truth that we all come and say, no doubt, we have our own baggage and our own mistakes and embarrassments. But when you come to Jesus, you say, you know, I, I yield it. I, it's about him and not me. And there's a way of understanding this, that those who are called out once, set apart in Jesus to do his work, you see how that knocks down human pride. <laughs> see, of all places in the church, knock down our pride. Say, none of us is good enough or clever enough to do it on our own, but we need Christ. And Paul says, I'm thankful for the church family in Philippi because there's a mutual understanding there that we've been recipients of God's grace, that none of us can do it on our own, but we're dependent on God and what he's done. And I hope that's the case here, to say we're dependent, mutually dependent as partakers of the grace we've received. Secondly, Paul would say, I'm thankful for, notice verse five, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I think this builds a bit more in verse 7, right? That they're partakers of grace specifically then for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That he seems to think that the church as a community together advances the great proclamation of what God has done in Jesus. So I don't know what you think about how folks are, are you know, converted or whose job that is. You know, maybe we fall into the trap. Well, that's the preacher's job. You know, you have 30 minutes a week and he's the professional and he gives the knockdown arguments and that's how we advance the gospel. Say, it's, it's not that way. It's the people of the church obeying the calling God has on our lives to use the gifts we've been given and the different spheres that we operate in for all of us to do that work together. I'm reminded of this time and time again. I even think in this past Christmas season, you say what our church has been able to do in terms of uh, financial contributions to other ministries. You say no one family could do that on their own, but you say together we were able to really make an impact this year. No doubt in Philippi that this is happening, that Paul's received a financial gift. So part of it is we together as the church bring our resources together to push forward the cause of Christ and say that's a wonderful thing to do, not only in Lorain County, but uh, throughout uh, the world that we've been able to do. We want to see the gospel go forward and we do that together. How I'm reminded often, weekly, <laughs> of how people in the church family see things in the Bible that I've never seen. I, this past Tuesday night, I'm on a conference call with a brother. We're talking about Ephesians chapter one. I don't know how many times I've read Ephesians chapter one, but probably like all of you, you read Ephesians one. And he points out to me a very, uh, it's right there, plain to see, but a sequence in the verbs about hearing and believing and God sealing. As in, in all my years of reading Ephesians one, I'd never seen that but someone in the church family was able to point it out and it enriched my faith. If you get my Friday emails, you would have noticed this week how I'm, I'm, I love what others in the church family are doing. Janet, who plays piano for us regularly, talented in many ways, has a podcast ministry that she does women's Bible studies. She interviewed another member of our church, Joanne Petersburg. You say, here are women devoting their energies, their thoughtfulness, and pushing out the gospel. Dr. Kilgore, who often volunteers here, a long member of our church, you say he's a physician and a scientist who takes faith seriously. And he writes a blog for his colleagues where he's, he's, he's wrestling with these issues and putting forth the gospel. Say, that's what we need. If we have a view of the church that oh, I go hear the talk, I go to the building to hear the talk. I say, that's really not what we're driving at. But we are all partners in the gospel ministry. God's called us out to be different, to work together, to use our gifts, to push the message of Jesus, right? And of course, you know, to push it out. I say, not in a forceful way, but rather to say, this is our faith and how we work it out together. You know, you also see this in how different members of the church connect with different people. 
know how many times parents of teenagers come to me and say, you know, I've been teaching my teenager these truths for so long and it just wasn't getting through, but then they met someone else in the church, they told them the same things and they responded all together differently because it came from a different voice. You say, that is not something to be frustrated by, but something to say, God, you've been infinitely wise to bring such a diverse group of people together. That the introverts, the extroverts, right? The, the people that process slower, the people that process things quicker, say all those things that can frustrate us, God's by his design has brought us together so that we can say it's about him and together we do the task of advancing the ministry. There's a partnership in the gospel, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel that we must be about. That every member of this church contributes, that speaks about, proclaims, lives it out, that we together advance the name of Jesus. So we share the gift of grace. We share the task of advancing the gospel. And then thirdly, and here one I think takes a, a little bit of unpacking for our context, but Paul says, you're partakers with me in the grace both in my in imprisonment and in the confirmation of the gospel. We could say it this way, that there's a thankfulness that the Philippians are partakers in the sufferings that result from following Jesus. That there's a lot of commentary on it. So are the Philippians themselves, you know, Paul is in a Roman prison. Are some of the Philippians being rounded up and taken to prison? Or is it the fact that they've suffered by giving a very costly gift? You say both of those are possibilities. But one thing's for sure. Paul gives thanks for his church, the church family in Philippi because they understand the costliness of following Jesus. Say this is very hard for our ears. You say, I guarantee nobody here who's really worried that you're gonna get a knock this afternoon at your door to say, you know what, we're gonna hit you with a fine because you went over to that place on Detroit Road. Um, you say, not, not many of us are worried about that kind of suffering. You say, how might we understand this? You say, I think we do are starting to get a little taste of, while we might say if it's even a word, but the kind of soft persecution, sometimes that term is the hard persecution being rounded up or fine, but the soft persecution of just having that bit of a stigma or having you know, your ideas not welcome in certain arenas, you say they're starting to get a little taste of maybe the costliness and the suffering that results from following Christ. You know, I think any time a Christian denies him or herself, we might think of this as suffering, right? So as a result of being in Jesus, I, I know that in my life there are things that say, you know, that would feel really good. Actually, that would be very good for me, and, but then there's a check in my conscience. You say, no, I... No, I, I shouldn't do that. And when that happens, it doesn't feel good, right? That there's a form of suffering there where you say, I, I can't do what I want to do. And I think that kind of thing. There's a mutual, there ought to be a mutual understanding among God's people that there's a suffering and a cost that comes from following Jesus. Now, you don't hear this. Sadly, you don't hear this in a lot of churches these days, right? It's the exact opposite. If you come here, then your life will go easy. I'm gonna unpack a lot of, I'm gonna give you a three things this week that are gonna help you be a more popular colleague, that kind of thing. Or it's worth your time and you know you need these values. Say, it's the, it seems to be the exact opposite, the understanding among the early church. Say, you wanna follow Jesus and take this seriously? There's gonna be an understanding of, of suffering and costliness. And who should best understand that than those in the fellowship themselves? So think about that. Say, are we those who understand grace? We're all here because we needed God's help. That we're sinners, and he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Also, we share in the task of advancing the gospel. That it's only by all of us together doing what God's called us to do that his name will go forth. And thirdly, do we share in this understanding of the costliness of our endeavor? There's a reason Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. That's because sometimes the, the ministry can feel like a boxing match, really. You know, you say, you get in to say, oh, there's a big sucker punch to everything that I hold dear. You say, but there's others around me who understand this kind of thing. Now, I would submit to you that based on those things we've mentioned is how Paul can say verse eight. Verse eight, for God is my witness, so God knows how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now you think about that, you're looking around the room, you know, or out in the lobby, you're thinking about people, and you say, I could never imagine having any affection for that person at all. I don't even like that person. I have nothing in common, let alone yearning for them. I'd say if we have that understanding of Christian fellowship as being based on preferences and likes and, 
and you know, however else we might think of that is not the best way, but rather to focus in on those partnerships that we have. Say, you know what, I don't really have a lot in common with that person, and we don't, you know, we, we don't connect, but wait, that is a person that understands grace. And that's a person that God's brought into this fellowship who is actually going to help advance the cause of Jesus. And that's a person who probably understands the costliness of what it means to follow him. And it's in that sense, I think, right, that Paul's able to say, I long to be with my church family. And there's a certain joy, right, in verse 4 and all this, the first mention of that word, and many times in Philippians. But there's a certain joy, again, not an emotion, but a, a disposition, we'll say, a disposition that comes from being in and with God's people because his word is going forward. That we're fellow partakers. We can say with the psalmist, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Can we say that practically? Now I ask you, say, do we really have this understanding of the church? Say, we're just individual movers doing our thing. This is what we do. Or do you say, God is at work here. We have a short time to be the church. Let's not waste it. Let's understand what we have in common. Let's drive the mission forward. That's what we're about. All of us together. Healthy churches have a high relational density motivated by Christ. Second point, let's focus in on verse nine. Verse nine is profound. You say this is a great prayer for our church and really for any Christian in your life. Verse nine, and it is my prayer then that your love, that in Philippi, may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Say what a succinct, before we get to that purpose clause in verse 10, but what a wonderful prayer that is. And here's what I would say about this at one level. In the church, Paul understands no division between the head and the heart. That you say, we can love and know at the same time. I don't know why this is. This is one of the great studies. I've never been able to figure this out. You know, like you, I probably attend a lot of churches. There have been churches that I, I've attended where I think they're really, they're really high on like the welcoming, loving part. I mean, you walk in, they got the greeting team, the people are, are friendly and smiling, and you say, it's a, I, I feel there's a warmth here. Uh, I, I like it here. They do that well. But then you get into the, the teaching, and you're thinking, you know, this is fluff. This isn't the Bible at all. It's as if they, that whole theology and doctrine are dirty words or something. And then you go to the other end of the continuum, and I've seen this too. You say, well, there's some really good theologians there. They really know their stuff. High accuracy. I mean, really little to take them, say they know their historical theology and their systematic theology, and they even can parse a few Greek words. You know, say, this is really impressive. But the place feels very stony. See, I've been going to that place for ages, and it's if nobody there even likes me. You say, and I, I hope we don't have this idea then in a church, we can either be a loving community or a knowing, discerning community. That's a false binary. It's not a binary that we see in the New Testament. Rather, there's a great prayer here that the church can grow in love and in knowledge and in moral discernment. Say, so how do we measure our progress as a church? You know, this is a great problem for pastors, right? You say, you know, it's not bucks and butts, as they say. It's not money coming in and people in the seats. How do we, well, what about this? How do we measure our love abounding? And if we understand this simply as an emotion, which we must never do, but rather as a moral virtue, again, a disposition to say, are we a more loving church? Is our church abounding in love, but not kind of out there in nowhere, but anchored to the truth in Jesus so that we can together exercise good moral discernment? You know, I think one of the reasons Christians can be fall to one side or the other on this you say the knowledge we know knowledge um, as we know that term unconnected to jesus does puff up right there's a pride there and the places we most associate with knowledge the universities have long kicked god out so you only need to look at the mottos of all of our leading universities to say yeah they pretty much don't follow that anymore you know god's out the door so we can be suspicious of knowledge and you say well may that never be say god wants us to think He's given us brains. He's given us his word. It's a complicated world out there. Say so he wants us to know and make moral judgments to know about him and then have what he says about himself inform our decisions practically. Say so we must be knowing and thinking people, testing the genuineness of things. You say, so what happens then is the other side of the divide, what could be called in the pejorative piety, which also creates a lot of problem because here comes the young person, right, who's been out in the world. They come in and they have a lot of really good questions, you know, 
these new bioethical questions that have just been raised in the last year. Say the world's a complicated. So here they come with their questions about difficult issues into the church, and the pietist says, there's no place for that here. Just believe. It's fideism. Just believe. Don't ask your questions. You don't need to ask those questions. Simply And say so that puts people off. And I want us to see that there's no, there's no problem with, with valuing both. To say, I want to love people and have a tender heart. I want our love to abound more and more. I want Providence to be a really, a really friendly place to say, we, we, we're, about, we're in the people business. But we also take our doctrine seriously. And we lean on each other to make good moral discernments. You know, in history, you have the rationalists and the romantics. You say those two are pitted against each other, right? The thinkers and the feelers. You say, no, we're, we're all human and we have both of those elements. And so Paul's prayer, as our prayer should be, may our love abound more and more so that we can increase in knowing God's word so that we can make good judgments. That's the kind of church we want to be. Test the genuineness of things. Love people well. As a sidebar on this, I want to go here, but notice that there's, again, this connection between love and truth is so incredibly important these days. You know where I see it most is in a lot of the, the gender debate stuff. And what I mean by this is the overwhelming scientific consensus is that human beings are binary male and female, right? Of the seven plus billion people, you say, that's the, the scientific, the, the male brain, the female brain. You do have anomalies that are rare, uh, it, but overwhelmingly, you have male and female. And what we're finding with a lot of this uh, gender stuff is that people feel the need to decouple love from truth. So they're saying, I really love this person, and they're feeling this way about their body. So even though it goes against the scientific truth, I'm gonna encourage them in the way that they feel because I think that if I don't do otherwise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna offend them. You say, that, that's the wrong thing to do. Can we see that love and truth always go together? An example I'll use, you know, I t teach in the classroom, co college undergraduates, you know, teach church history, and, you know, I'll, I'll ask a question, say, about the Council of Nicaea or something, and my favorite student will raise her hand, and she'll give an answer that's dead wrong in front of the whole class. You know, and I could think, well, this is my very favorite student. I don't want to correct her. I especially don't want to do it in this format because I, the last thing I would want to do is embarrass her. Therefore, I'll just pretend that that didn't happen. You say, well, that would be the wrong thing to do, wouldn't it? to say if I love the person and I care about my students and I care about truth, to say the best thing I can do is to lovingly say, well, have you thought about it this way or what about this? W wouldn't that be uh, the better way to go? And you say that must always be the view of the Christian to not allow this idea that, that somehow I'm most loving to people when I ignore the truth, but rather to say sometimes, almost all of the time, love and truth go together that I want to love them, but I also want to point to real knowledge and real moral discernment. There's no division between the head and the heart in the church. When we align ourselves with Christ, we move towards wholeness, and we can prevent, again, others from stumbling. Now, this purpose clause. So why are we doing all these things, right? We're partakers in the gospel. We understand suffering. We're, we're advancing the God. You know, we're abounding in love and knowledge and discernment, but there's a purpose clause. And the purpose clause is so that when Jesus comes again, when we stand before him, that he's gonna be pleased with how we've lived our lives. You've been wondering why I've put off verse six. Verse six might be one of the, the first one we've come across. Philippians has a lot of wonderful one-liners that we've memorized even as children, if you are Christian as a child. One six is one of those. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So you memorize that as a child. It's a great sense of security, right? They say if you're in Christ and God is working in you, then he's gonna carry it out in his good time till the day that he calls us home. You notice that same phrase, the day of Jesus Christ is used in verse 10 again for the day of Christ. It's a technical term, the day of Christ. It's when he's gonna come again to consummate his kingdom. That Jesus is coming again. That the things that we're doing now to advance, again, the cause of Jesus and the message of Jesus, and as we're abounding in love and exercising moral discernment, is so that we can be blameless, right? So that we can have lived the lives God's called us to when he comes again, filled with the fruit that comes through knowing him. I'm always surprised, you know, people say, well, that, that Christian stuff, that's, that's old. I mean, you know, that's, uh, the, the modern world has no place for that old story. Say, we of all people are people of the future, people of purpose. 
You say, my question is to the naturalist. I mean, the naturalist just says, you know, I'm plowing through. Here we go, another Monday tomorrow. You say, I just as long as I have, just as long as my, my cells keep operating and my heart keeps pumping, you know, I, guess, I guess that's it. There's no talk of a future or a purpose, only if it's self-imposed. But we of all folks, we Christians, right, we're doing this so that when we confront the Lord Jesus again, we can say, yes, Lord, I responded to your call. I served you. I wanted to serve you more and more. I wanted my love to abound more and more in you. I wanted to do your good work, that there's a purpose in our efforts. We of all people are future-looking people, people with a purpose. A few closing thoughts then. You say, if you're not a Christian today, say, I, don't, I just think this is weird. We spent Sunday morning reading this old letter. Say, I hope you see that in the church, say, in the church, God's at work. And he invites those who are here to re repent and come to Jesus to say, I'd really like to have that purpose. Quite frankly, I'm out here floating, getting in all the, I get so upset about politics and you know, I'm so angry at all this. And I'm so confused. I'm at odds at all these people. You see something different in this. Say, wait, there's a grace. There's a grace and a calling that comes from Christ. And actually, I can be a part of it with others and brothers and sisters and to see that and to say, you know, today I, I turn my life over to that. It'd be a wonderful thing to think about. And for those of us who are Christians, I would say that this section really serves as a model prayer for those in your life. You say, what a nice little simple prayer for our church this year. God, may our love abound more and more so that with knowledge and all discernment, we can best please you. Say, I love that prayer. Pray that for your kids. Lord, you know, I pray that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that they would please the Lord and be secure that when he comes again, they'll, they'll be right with him. Say, that's the prayer for every Christian. Again, I'll kind of end where I started, but let's think carefully about what we're doing here. We don't want to squander our time together or think that we're individual movers, that we come to hear a talk. Say, no, we're God's called out ones in this time and this place to be fellow partakers in the grace, to advance the cause of Jesus, to understand the costliness of what it is to follow him, and knowing the fact that he who's doing a work, we're the ones in whom he's doing a work, he's gonna carry it on into completion as we yield ourselves to what he wants to do with us. Hope we think about marks of a healthy Christian fellowship. May our church be about that business. I'll invite Matthias back up for our closing hymn. Lord, whatever we have thought about what it means to be in fellowship with one another, to be members of a local church. I pray this week as we study Philippians, the first 11 verses, that we'd really think carefully about what this call is to be those in you and consequently those who are set apart for a different purpose, that we wouldn't go our own way but rather you would bind us together in these three-way bonds. And instead of thinking, well, I don't really like that person, but rather to say, you know, we have a bond in Jesus. And as I think about that connection with him, that I will grow closer with those in the church family. Help us to have this appreciation that we of all people should not be prideful, but rather to say we needed your grace. We were in desperate, a desperate situation, being dead and incurring your wrath, but you rescued us that it's not us but you. Help us to realize that even those that we think differently about are serving your causes and your purposes and they're able to reach people that we'd never be able to reach, but all of us together must be at this gospel ministry, that we would be those who point to the work you've done in Jesus and that's the very place of hope. And then, Lord, as whatever happens, that we would have a taste and appreciation that it's a costly following but that there's strength in this kind of uh, communal appreciation that we lean on each other. You say, even as we're in the boxing match and thinking about uh, what we hold dear to be um, more and more on the outside, I pray that we would, uh, again, find strength in one another and that our love may abound, that we wouldn't have to choose between loving you and knowing your will and making good moral discernments and engaging with the world, but that we should aim to be a church that has both for the purpose that we would bring glory to you in these lives, in our lives now, but also in the end times. So Lord, commit this to you. Help us to think carefully about what we're doing. Let me not waste a moment. May we be the church you want us to be. May Jesus be lifted high. Amen. Everybody stand as we close our service today and please that the Lord would seal these words to our hearts by singing.
Christ compels us in this famous uh, little story of the early church. The saints devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. It was in the church. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Brothers and sisters, we're fellow partakers in the gospel. May we live for him this week. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen. May we go in his peace. Thank you.